This is Eschatology, and I'm Ben Thorpe. Welcome to what I think will be a series of interview episodes that go into detail about particular aspects or implications of climate change. I found a lot of the time there were interviews that I just didn't want to cut anything out of because every aspect of it was something insightful or interesting. This is definitely, definitely one of those interviews. For this week, I've got an interview with Amitav Ghosh. He's an Indian writer who works in both fiction and nonfiction. His book, The Great Derangement, which was nonfiction, has informed a lot of the ways I think about climate change, in particular, the ways in which he talks about kind of our Western narratives struggling to include or grapple with massive collective problems like changes in the climate. He's got two more recent books, and I actually talked to him just as uh, The Gun Merchant was coming out in 2019. Uh, in February, he just released a new book, Jungle Nama. I think uh, both of those seem to be a pretty direct attempt to grapple with climate change in fiction. Okay, um, here's the interview. Yeah, and I, I kind of came into your work through The Great Derangement. And uh, I think it says a lot of things that helped me kind of contextualize what's going on in The Gun Merchant. So maybe let's start with... The book describes a moment uh, that really s stood out for me, The Great Derangement, uh, where you're walking around the streets of New Delhi and all of a sudden you you found that you were in the eye of a tornado. Yes. Can you talk about that moment? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it was a, it was in 1978. I think it was in April 1978. Or was it, uh, some anyway, something like that, March or April. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a day of very strange weather. And I came out, uh, I was in a library and I stepped out of the library and decided I would go and visit a friend of mine who just happened to be staying uh, with his aunt. I never normally went that way. So I started walking down this road and I, I saw my friend and then the weather seemed to be getting worse still. So I came out and I stepped onto a road and I looked up over my shoulder and I saw this strange cloud in the sky. And as I was looking at it, something it seemed to extrude a kind of long finger, which came spinning down. Uh, and suddenly it, it hit the earth. And it wasn't very far from me. And I was, uh, you know, I took to my heels and I went and, uh, you know, managed to find some shelter. And before I knew it, there, were, there was all this stuff whirling past me, you know, like uh, uh, bicycles and scooters and stuff. And uh, it was effectively a tornado. It was the first and only tornado in uh, the recorded history of New Delhi. And it struck down for exactly one mile or something like that. And I happened to be there at exactly that time, you know. So it was like, it must have been, uh, it must have made contact with the earth for like a, two or three minutes. But many people died, you know, and uh, there was incredible destruction and so on. And, you know, for years afterwards, I wanted to write about this event because, you know, as writers, we do that. We write about stuff that we've experienced. But strangely, it was never possible, you know, simply because, you know, uh, the novel or fiction as a form, it imposes certain conditions of believ believability or credibility, you know. And it's very hard in a book to, uh, you know, put your character on a street and suddenly a tornado comes and, and hits that street. So I was never able to, um, you know, to fit it into a book uh, until I wrote uh, Gun Island. Yeah, and I, I, I want to talk about that point just a little bit more because you, you do say in The Great Derangement that uh, kind of the novel itself and what we think of as literary writing 
uh, has a hard time focusing on the collective. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, uh, let me let me put it in a somewhat more nuanced way. I think what has happened to uh, to uh, serious fiction in the last uh, 40, 50 years is that it's become more and more kind of centered on the individual psyche, on our feelings, on individual identity, on, uh, you know, uh, individual emotions and so on. But fiction wasn't always like that. You know, if you consider, let's say, Melville's uh, Moby Dick, Moby Dick is so much about a collective experience. You know, in the first place, it's about a crew. We know that there are hundreds of people on this Pequod, uh, on the, you know, on the ship, on the whaling ship. Not only that, we know that these uh, people are incredibly diverse. I mean, uh, Melville actually tells us that and he has them singing in different languages and so on. So, you know, already there we have a collective experience. But, you know, I think really to me in many ways uh, it's John Steinbeck's uh, The Grapes of Wrath, which is really a, a very important uh, a book in this tradition because, again, The Grapes of Wrath, you know, just as uh, Moby Dick is about a ship, The Grapes of Wrath is about a truck, you know, and it's carrying a, a number of people, you know, they're just they're members of a family. But again, they experience uh, through this family, he tells the story of a much larger experience, you know, of displacement from, uh, from um, the Midwest, uh, really, from the Great Plains uh, because of uh, actually a climate event, you know, the, uh, the, the, the desiccation of, uh, of the Great Plains. And they're being thrust into California, they're, they're having to leave. But again, you know, what's interesting in, uh, in, in The Grapes of Wrath is that Steinbeck doesn't just present this as a weather event, it's weather plus the banks. You know, I mean, uh, the farmers are actually being evicted by the banks, not just by the weather. And they have to sort of take to the, uh, you know, take to the road to recoup something of their lives. And I do think that, you know, Steinbeck's work uh, is extraordinarily relevant to our times because that's what we are seeing today, you know, large numbers of people displaced, having to move. And, uh, you know, uh, in, the, in the 30s, uh, people from Oklahoma had the choice of going to California. The world is today, in a way, much more crowded. So many people who are displaced uh, are having to push through other countries, you know, uh, coming up against uh, borders which can be uh, which can be deadly for them. Uh, one more thing about the Great Derangement, because uh, I think it also applies. You mention in the book that while capitalism is often linked to climate change, empire and imperialism are often overlooked. And uh, I think one of the theses that I was surprised by from the book is that imperialism may actually have delayed climate catastrophe that we're seeing now because many Western nations have been reluctant and or violently opposed to third world development. Can you talk more about that? Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> I would put it slightly diff differently. I would say that, in fact, uh, what is uh, profoundly relevant to climate change is actually power, uh, geopolitics, if you like, you know. So, uh, you know, in the 19th century and the 20th century, for the West to industrialize, they, need, they needed raw materials. You know, they needed large parts of the world to not industrialize so that they could produce those raw materials. And in effect, uh, those raw materials were being produced uh, within colonies and within, uh, you know, 
uh, what were then called underdeveloped nations, you know, I mean, like in, uh, as in South America or in large parts of Asia. Uh, so because of that dynamic, in effect, you know, the development of the, of the fossil fuel economy, if you like, uh, especially in India, it's quite demonstrable in the case of India, it was actually suppressed, you know, through financial measures and through political measures. Uh, many in the Indian industrialists were very eager to adopt uh, uh, the fossil, you know, uh, let's say the steam engine. You know, the, uh, it was actually Indian industrialists who were putting money into uh, railroads, into steamers and so on. After all, let's not forget that these engines uh, were invented uh, in England. And the white world, the, the Western world copied it, you know. I mean, it was a copycat uh, mechanism, you know, everywhere they were copied. They were copied in America, they were copied in uh, Italy, in France. And there were many people who wanted to copy it in India. But they were, uh, uh, they were denied the funding, they were, uh, they were literally stopped through a political process. The development of these, of these kinds of uh, industry everywhere were state-supported, you know. But uh, Indian industrialists never got that state support. So in, in effect, uh, you know, the, uh, the fossil fuel economy withered and died uh, in India uh, and in China, for example. And, you know, it's now that we discover the real cost of that, you know, because if India and China had started to industrialize seriously in the 19th century, had they been independent, had they been able to do that, then the cost of this industrialism would have become apparent a long time ago. We would have known much more clearly in 1910, 1920, that the whole world can't live through the burning of fossil fuels. Although, as you know, Gandhi already noted that kind of around the time. He was saying, hey, if we all live this way, it's not going to work. Of course, you know, absolutely. Today we say that, you know, science has told us about, uh, uh, you know, the cost of fossil fuels, you know, because they've investigated greenhouse gases and so on. But actually, it's just completely commonsensical. I mean, Gandhi was not a scientist. Uh, but, uh, you know, there were, there were people in China who said the same thing that if we all live like this, we'll asphyxiate, that we'll die, we'll, we'll eat up the world like locusts. And if, in effect, that's what we see now. Talk to me about uh, In the Gun Merchant. This is about a, a real Bengali myth. Uh, talk to me about that myth, and maybe we'll get into later what that might tell us about today. Well, when I, when I finished writing The Great Derangement, I really felt that, uh, you know, to write about the peculiar state of the world that we are in today, uh, it's difficult to find modern models, you know, modern literary resources, simply because modern literature has become so invested in individual experience, if you like, and so on. So I felt that it's important to go back and look at uh, pre-modern uh, literature, which often means myth or folklore or whatever, and uh, I, I began to find uh, these uh, these wonderful old stories, and you know, really, the story about the gun, about the merchant and the goddess of serp uh, snakes, uh, which is very uh, a very old uh, story from Eastern India. Uh, it actually is conceptually so clear. Essentially, the goddess of uh, the goddess of snakes uh, represents the beings of the world. You know, the non-human. Uh, aspects of the world. And the merchant uh, represents, if you like, the human desire for profit. And already there it conceptualizes, you know, the conflict between the two in such a clear way. 
you know. So it's really striking that, you know, nothing that is happening today is a mystery. You know, our ancestors saw it thousands of years ago that uh, if human greed were unleashed upon the planet, it would cause havoc and misery. There's a moment where Sardine is at a museum and a historian there is giving a speech who says, Enlightenment Titans had no inkling of what was getting underway, yet strangely all around the earth, ordinary people appear to have sensed the stirring of something momentous. It felt like a moment you were kind of jumping off the page and saying, this is kind of the role of these myths. This is why we have to listen to stories like this one uh, that have been with us for a long time. You know, I think that moment in history, the 17th century, is very important because in the first place, you know, it was the period of the Little Ice Age, the last great sort of climatic uh, 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 anomaly, you know, except that it was a different kind of anomaly in that uh, global temperatures fell, uh, whereas now they're rising. But even though they fell very slightly, that is to say the, by about one degree centigrade, it created havoc around the world, you know, the famines, rebellion, wars, but also strange and interesting intellectual leaps. So amongst the educated classes, there was what we call the Enlightenment. But amongst other people, ordinary people, there were these millennial cults, if you like. There were people who could sense the beginning of something really momentous, something very frightening. And, you know, I think what they essentially sensed is that, you know, with the start of the fossil fuel economy, there are going to be unintended consequences. You know, and in fact, that has proved to be the case. You know, I mean, the engineers and technologists and scientists, we are always told they're ever so clever. But, you know, what actually happens is that the world is so complex that they can't take uh, the unintended consequences into account, you know. So, you know, in the 19th century, the, the steam engine seemed like a great idea. The internal combustion engine seemed like a great idea. But look at where we are. And, you know, just a few days ago, I was listening to a scientist from, uh, actually an engineer from Harvard, talking about all the benefits that could come to us from geoengineering, you know. And this was my thought. I thought any ordinary person will know that, you know, what you're telling us is going to have the most devastating unintended consequences. You know, people knew that then, they know this now. Uh, but sadly, you know, in the end, it's the elites who win. Okay, there's one more moment that I want to get to in uh, the novel, because it, it just, boy, it, it struck me to my core. Uh, and uh, so this is a moment where we're describing kind of what is happening in the world, that people may already be possessed. Uh, everybody knows what must be done if the world is to continue to be a livable place, if our homes are not to be invaded by the sea or by creatures like that spider. Everyone knows, and yet we are powerless, even the most powerful among us. Can you talk about that moment? Yeah, well, it's the truth, isn't it? I mean, if you look around us, uh, we all know what to do. I mean, in fact, uh, you know, so many people, uh, you know, today uh, came up to me and said, you know, we all know what we have to do, but we can't do it. There's nothing, uh, you know, if I cut my emissions by a little bit, the next day I discover that it doesn't really matter because I took a flight the day before yesterday. And we are in that position, you know, of both knowing and being unable to change. And, you know, that is something which, uh, you know, our ancestors would have called possession. That is exactly what it is. Possession is being uh, robbed of your will, to be robbed of your agency. 
You know, and that's in effect what's happened to humanity today. You know, we seem to be collectively uh, devoid of uh, of human agency, and I think that's why you know for me it's so exciting to see these uh, youth movements like um, Extinction Rebellion or Sunrise Movement and so on, because you know they're reasserting some kind of agency. I don't care whether it. Act- whether it solves the world's problems or not, but it is an awakening, you know. It is the reclamation of human agency, of human freedom, if you like, from a circumstance where the really global elites are always saying to us, there's no way out. This is where we are. We are stuck. This is what we are stuck with, you know. Uh, so these are uh, these young people, and they're really ordinary young kids, you know. They're doing what uh, people did in the 17th century, where they said, no, uh, you know, there's something very dangerous about what is happening in the world around us, and we have to pay attention. That was Amitav Ghosh. Thanks again for listening. This is Eschatology, and I'm Ben Thorpe.